0: Well, this morning we will be in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. If you'd like to turn there, if you're going to use the pew Bibles in front of you, that will be on page 783, I believe, 783. Normally we preach through books of the Bible, but as it is Christmas, we're going to pause and focus on this wonderful gospel account of the birth of Jesus. And I'll go ahead and read through the first chapter for us. As <clears> well, <throat> so this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab. Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, and Elihud, the father of Eleazar; Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathon, the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary his wife, home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In January of 2020, a high-end fitness chain called Equinox debuted one of its most lavish advertising campaign campaigns yet. The title of the campaign was Make Yourself a Gift to the World. Author Tara Isabella Burton in her fascinating book Self-Made uh, unpacks this ad campaign. It-, it featured, you know, posters of implausibly beautiful, artistically rendered young men and women evoking the mythological demigods of the past. And Burton says the campaign was retelling the story of Narcissus, the infamous Greek god who fell so in love with his own reflection as he gazed at it in the pond that he drowned himself in the pond, le- leaning out to try and get a little bit closer to the beauty that he beheld in the picture. Well, the ad campaign had a, had a, 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 a you know, commercial that was retelling this same exact story of Narcissus, except with a twist of the moral. See, the ad campaign showed that self-obsession actually could turn us into a treasure to bring the whole world pleasure. That if Narcissus would have just cared more about himself, he would have given the gift of himself to the world. That was what the ad campaign was doing. And so with a a wink to the viewer, the narrator asks the question, does that not make self-obsession the most selfless act of all? I mean, the message of the advertisement is clear. Join Equinox, Gym, where prices start at $250 a month with a one-year required membership. And you, too, can become God's gift to the world. The chief marketer of Equinox said this, We believe that when you become the best version of yourself, you radiate outward and contribute more to the world around you. That's a fascinating little ad campaign. I haven't been able to find the details on if it worked or not, how much did it boost their memberships, but Burton in her book goes on to document this worldview that has been coming about, and she calls it the idea that we are self-makers. She explains that this idea has actually been encoded into almost every aspect of Western contemporary life. Not only are we those who believe we can and should customize and create and curate every facet of our lives to reflect reflect our inner truth, we are in the thrall of this seductive myth that we are to become our best selves because our best selves will be a gift to the world. You see, she writes, our modern world has this great faith in our creative, even magical power to be the self-fashioning self. And what she says is that it has replaced the older understanding of a God-created and God-ordered world and universe with each one of us having a parts to play in this universe that God created. well, Burton shows, however, though, we have not gotten rid of God actually. We've just relocated him. Now the belief in the divine is the divine in us. We've turned our back on God the creator, and instead we've put God within. He's the force of our own desires, our obsession with self-creation, and this idea that we have the power to create and recreate ourselves to be a gift to the world. I found that fascinating as a thought to open a sermon about Christmas, this time of a gift that was given. And here's the thing. I imagine here in this room, there's probably very few who who would be standing in line to join the equinox gyms to make yourself a gift to the world. And yet, I bet if I asked you to raise your hand of how many of you in this room are doing the exact same job as your mother or father did, very few, if any, hands would go up why is that well because since the enlightenment and the industrial revolution our ability to make ourselves is enormous i mean it used to do you just did what dad did or you did what mom did and you played your role in the town that you lived in we all had our part ah, but with the vastly expanding world of technology and things we are all self-creators And we oftentimes can slip into that self-creation being our own little God, making ourselves remake ourselves for however we want to put ourselves on. We do it through clothing or career, through fitness or through Facebook. But the message that we often find ourselves doing is communicating ourselves to the world around us. Do we want to put on a, a powerful image or a fanciful image? What is it that we desire most to be known by? Well, I bring this up. Because this morning, in Matthew chapter 1, we have one of the four authorized biographies of Jesus. And so he's going to tell us what he desired to be known by. What was it that Jesus wanted us to remember about his birth, about his being made, as it were, in human form. So with that, we'll look at Matthew chapter 1, the birth of the king. And we have two sermon points this morning. It's the king's crooked line and the prophet's promise fulfilled. The King's Crooked Line. Yes, I read through that whole genealogy. I know it was riveting. I had you on the edge of your seats. Uh, But I did it intentionally because the genealogy is layered with all sorts of wonderful meaning. Now, the the NIV, though, we have to start at verse 1. And the NIV renders verse 1 saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus. I think that misses an important clue, though, of what verse 1 actually says. Uh, More literally, we could render it the book of the Genesis of Jesus, And that language should be familiar if you know your Bible at all, because Genesis is the first book of the Bible, the Genesis, the creation account. So so why does Matthew begin this book with the Genesis of Jesus? Well, certainly it shows in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is the creator. He's going to go on to to speak of those things. But really, it's because we're dealing with the origin, the Genesis of Jesus in human form. God, the Son, take on flesh. Uh, So you could even also translate this verse, though, that This is the book of the Genesis by Jesus, meaning that Jesus is the creator, but now he's come to be the re-creator. See, mankind was originally made by God, and now God has come in the flesh, in Jesus, to begin his re-creational work in the Son. It's the new Genesis by Jesus. Well, most important for our purposes this morning, though, is the second half of verse one. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you should be asking yourself this question. Why does it say son of David before son of Abraham? I mean, Abraham was a long time before David. Now, this doesn't catch us in our modern Western world because we're individualistic and we worship youth. But Abraham was the patriarch. He's the patriarch of all the patriarchs. So why does he get put after David? Well, particularly, think now, the fact in the ancient world, and even in the eastern parts of the world, if you go speak to missionaries from the east still today, they'll tell you it's not youth that gets worshipped. There's a great honor paid to age and experience. And in the ancient world, the line got weaker as you went along. So why would you put Abraham after David? Well, the reason is because, again, they didn't worship our youth culture. They didn't worship our, the billions and billions of dollars spent on the wellness industry that has popped up in recent decades. I, I saw a meme recently. I had this wonderful snarky little picture about this. A meme is a picture with like a little snarky comment, and there was two pictures. And the top picture showed like a, a horde of people running towards a building. I think they were zombies like going to go attack a city. And, and the little caption said something to the effect of, um, you know, all the people signing up for gym memberships on January 1st. And then the picture below it showed a gym with two people in it and said February 1st. Uh, that's our wellness culture, right? We worship youthfulness and all these things. Well, Matthew clearly doesn't. That's not his purpose. Well, what is his purpose then? Well, the purpose is because what he's going to do in this gospel is show us that Jesus is the king. That's why he mentions the king first. Jesus is the heir of King David. The rest of those first 17 verses are going to actually hammer this point home, that Jesus is the true and better and final Davidic king. So this is Matthew's way of saying that all the promises that were given to David and this Messiah who was to come have been born here in Bethlehem. And then Abraham is still mentioned second because to Abraham was this promise that the blessings of God were going to flow to the world. And now we're about to see how that plays out actually in this genealogy, that Abraham's promised blessing through Jesus was going to flow to the world. But first, it starts to tell us this, this picture of the genealogy. But let me give you a little bit of background about this genealogy. If you compare this genealogy with Luke's, they're different. And moreover, if you go back to Chronicles, where Matthew's drawing this genealogy, you're going to find that he's either a really, really bad writer or he has intentionally edited it. And I can just tell you, he has intentionally edited it. He knows that he's editing it. In, in the ancient Jewish world, it was oftentimes the fact that you would give a genealogy and you'd just edit out all the guys in the middle because they weren't that important. Uh, and, and so that's what's happening here. So I read all of those times, he fathered, he fathered, he fathered. But you can translate that word, the ancestor of. So Matthew's not lying, he's not being deceptive. Anybody who knows anything knows, yes, that's, this is what's going on. He's structuring this genealogy very particularly. And he does it for a couple reasons. The first one is the name of the point, to demonstrate the king's crooked line. Here's what I mean. There in verse three, we read that Judah fathered Perez by Zerah and uh, and Zerah by Tamar. Now, if you know that story, so Judah, he goes and finds himself a Canaanite wife, which was already kind of a no-no. And he finds his Canaanite wife, and then he likely gets a Canaanite wife for his son, his oldest son. Well, his oldest son, we read, was a wicked man. And so God ended his life. He judged him. And so then the, the daughter-in-law now doesn't have a child. And in that day, then the brother would come, and he would give her a child. So that way the, child could care, the son could care for her in her old age. But the second son was wicked too. And so God took his life in judgment. So now Judah's like, I think I, I think I understand what's going on here. This gal's bad news. Maybe I shouldn't have married a Canaanite woman, and maybe I shouldn't have given my son one. So he basically lies and says, well, my, my third son's not old enough. Just, you know, I'll, I'll let you know. Well... Tamar gets wise to the situation and so she knows she needs a son to care for her and so she says all right you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna get pregnant but I'm gonna do it by Judah so she dresses up like a prostitute builds a little tent along the side of the road where she knows he's gonna be coming and sure enough he shows up and she gets impregnated by her father-in-law in other words the point is that's not someone you want in your genealogy uh, Some years ago, I did one of those uh, ancestry uh, you know, tests or whatever, and I found I have this like second aunt or something, and she's traced our family line all the way back to the late 1500s. And uh, as I'm like clicking through all these ones, she's done this incredible work. I'm clicking through all of them. I have these two generations where, where the guy's name was something like Asa Napoleon Bonaparte Binkley. Like, well, I, I guess I know what side of that conflict they were on. Uh, th- that's the kind of guy in the genealogy I would just say, just, just skip him. Why, why didn't you just skip him? Matthew's clearly skipping all sorts of people. Why does he mention Tamar? Well, it gets worse because then he keeps going and he mentions Rahab. See, Rahab didn't just dress up like a prostitute and and pretend so she could have a child to care for herself. No, she was a prostitute. She was a Gentile prostitute. But when the Israelites came across the Jordan, she says, I heard of the wonders that your God had did to bring you out of Egypt. And and so I'm gonna come with you. And so this Gentile prostitute, the second woman listed in the line. And the third woman is Ruth. Now, Ruth is is seen to be nothing but a woman of noble character. She's actually the picture in the Hebrew Bible of the Proverbs 31 woman. But Ruth was a Moabite, which meant she was a Gentile. And the Moabites had a really shady history. Then finally, we get the fourth woman in the list. And she's not even given a name. Because this King David, this man who's the pillar of the Old Testament promises, says he had a son named Solomon by the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Because as the story goes, David saw Bathsheba, and he seduces her. And then he tries to make it look like, really, it was Uriah. And when that doesn't work, he assassinates and kills Uriah. Well, Uriah was a Hittite, so he was a Gentile. And so his wife would have been deemed a Gentile. So why do we get this weird, constructed, edited genealogy? Well, the first reason is to show you that the king, the long-promised king, he has a very crooked line. He has a bunch of Gentiles and shady Gentiles in his line. So that's the first thing that we're seeing here. And then the question, though, is, okay, so why? Why do we need to know that? Well, as I said, because the promises of Abraham were that through his offspring, through his seed, the blessing of God would flow to the nations. And already, even the line of Jesus has begun to trickle in blessings, blessing some Gentile ladies along the way. And now the blessing is about to expand and go to the world. So the simplest answer is because God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Uh, but not only that, th- there's a, a, another element to this. And, and maybe you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian. And maybe this is the part of the story where you just start to say, wait a minute, I thought Christians were supposed to be these like, really good people? Like they're supposed to be all shiny and happy? I mean, isn't that the idea? They're supposed to be basically perfect? No, the line is showing us. The second thing is, no, no. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. If the line had to be perfect, there never would have been a king. If the line had to be free from sin, from from tyranny, from all sorts of wreck, there would have been no line. That's the second thing it shows us. And moreover, in this gospel, it's going to go on to say where Jesus says, this is the problem, you can't actually be good enough. Because in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, do you want to know what the standard is? The standard's this. You must be perfect, just like my heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. See, friends, if if the line of the king had to be impeccable, then there never would have been a king. So as we see, this king then is not just Israel's king. No, he's the king who already has had the Gentile nations trickled in, and he's going to come to rule over all the world, as this book is going to end with all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. So he's not just Israel's king. So that's the first and second thing we see. Uh, The third thing we see is there in verse 17. And this strikes us as a little weird because we're not used to this. Look at verse 17 one more time. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Again, Matthew has constructed this genealogy. He's edited it. So if you go and take it back and look at it and contrast it with Chronicles, there's not actually 14 generations. So he's not being sneaky. Everybody knows this. This is, this is not like some kind of like, ah, look it, I pulled the wool over their eyes. Anybody who knows anything knows that's not the case. So the question we have to ask is why? Why does he do this 14, 14, 14? Well, one of the reasons I think is this, is because Matthew is clearly showing us this movement from when God called the first patriarch, Abraham, there were 14 generations until the king. Did you notice I said David the king? He's the only one given that title, even though there's 15 kings listed after him. So there was 14 generations from the call of God to the king who saves. But then 14 generations after that king, already they're going off into exile, which means they have completely failed. They have not worshiped God as they should. They went from 14 generations of the king with all the promises to now they are so sinful that they've been taken off to exile. And so now 14 generations after that exile is the next king. So that's the first thing the 14 is doing. But there's one other thing that the 14s are doing which is, is challenging for us because we don't tend to think in this way. But here's the thing. In ancient languages, they didn't have a separate number system. So the first letter of the alphabet is the letter 1, and the second is 2. So in Hebrew, it's Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav. Now, I gave you this little Hebrew lesson for this. is David's name. You don't count the vowels. Is Dalit, Vav, Dalit. Four plus six plus four, which equals 14. So Matthew started with son of David. And halfway through his genealogy, he says, David the king. And now he wraps up his genealogy with anybody who's paying attention with a whisper. Fourteen generations, David. Fourteen generations, David. Fourteen generations, David. The true David. The final David. The king of all kings has come. Or to put it another way. The genealogy is telling us we need a king we need a king who as was read earlier the government will rest on his shoulders we, we we need one who will not allow the government to fail and the problem is if you pay any attention to the modern political situation we know there is no one morally up for that job it seems as the stories come in, it doesn't matter what party, it doesn't matter what office, there's just failure, moral, ethical failure. And so someone paying close attention will see that there was failure all along the way until the true David, the true David, the true David, the king who was born in Bethany or in Bethlehem. The genealogy shows that as great as David was, he was still a murderer and an adulterer. And as the genealogy shows, long before any time you had a good heir, they eventually died. So we need a king. But the increase of his government, there will be no end. And the peace that he brings, there will be no end. We need one who will sit on the throne of David and rule with perfect justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. But so maybe you're like me, and as this year ends, you grieve the next year as an election year. Maybe you're sick and tired of the preening and the pandering and the self-promotion. Well, the bad news is there's no stopping the political process the politics are going to go forth. And particularly it's going to go forth with those who are self-made little demigods seeking to present themselves as a gift to the world. They're going to be like Narcissus, staring at themselves in the pool or on the TV. And they're going to try and drag you along to stare at them too. I would encourage you to be free. Instead, come back and reread Matthew 1 and listen to the whispers. What you need is David. You need a new David. You need King David. That's this is doing the king who came from a crooked line but the king who's going to come and rule perfectly and bring in perfect peace well that is the king's crooked line the next is the prophet's promise prophets promise fulfilled look at verses 18 through 25 this is how the birth of jesus the messiah came about his mother mary was pledged to be married to joseph but before they came together she was found to be pregnant through the holy spirit The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. As you can see, Matthew's telling this story from Joseph's perspective. Luke spends a great deal more time on Mary's experience. And at the human level, I almost titled this point Uh, a a, a a wife's shady story, (laughs) because at the human level, this has got to be one of the worst excuses ever come up with in the history of the world. Here's the thing, Joseph, God got me pregnant. That that has got to be the worst excuse, if it's not true, in the history of the world. But that's precisely what Joseph faced, was his bride-to-be, his betrothed, saying, so here's the thing, funny story. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes if there ever was a time for righteous indignation it would be this if there ever was a time to be overcome and angered it would be this because not only is she pregnant but she's blaming it on god so when we read about joseph that he had it in mind to put her away quietly what we're seeing something is that this was a man of great character because see, in those days, uh, Joseph, you had to get a divorce to break an annulment, or uh, to, to break a betrothal. And in those days, typically, if you were going to do that, and she shows up pregnant before the wedding, if you keep her as your wife, then you're the guilty party. And if you send her out and expose her publicly, she's probably deserving of death by stoning. But Joseph doesn't want to do that. Joseph decides he wants to divorce her quietly. Quietly. Now, he has to divorce her for his own reputation's sake, uh, but he wants to do so quietly. He's a gentleman. He's a kind man. So he decides. Actually, if you kind of dig into the Greek here, it's, it, it says as he considered, but really he's kind of showing us he'd made up his mind. And he goes to bed, making up his mind like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going I'm to put her away quietly. And that night, he has a dream. And in that dream, all of a sudden, an angel comes to him and says, listen. It really was God. God, the Holy Spirit. This is, this, this is legit. She's, she's not lying to you. But did you catch? There's a little hint that comes here. What does the angel say to Joseph there in verse 20? Joseph, son of David. Because Matthew's hammering home the same point. This is going to be the son of David. The final, the true son of David. And the angel assures him, she's still a virgin. This was the Holy Spirit. Trust. It's going to be okay. Now, this is the point where maybe if you're visiting with us this morning and, and you're not a Christian, where you start to go, yeah, see, this is why I don't buy this Christianity thing. It's, it's basically like a fairy tale, right? It's been called the God of the gaps. There's this thing online, hashtag, with all capital letters and no spaces, God did it. And it's used anytime something happens that we can't explain really well, they just go, oh, God did it. And hey, at one level, I completely understand why you might at this point be rather skeptical. I mean... Hey, that's a really convenient excuse. God did it. But I do think it's worth to think on these things carefully. Uh, There's a man named Neil Shenvey. He did a PhD in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley. He was not a Christian when he went to college. He ended up getting saved while he's in college. And in his book, Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity, he writes very convincingly on this topic. As a scientist, he writes this. Almost everyone would agree that some conceivable events would cry out for a supernatural explanation. In fact, he writes, there are certain phenomena that favor a supernatural explanation because natural explanations are either difficult or contrived. So given his deep study of mathematics and chemistry, he shows that we really have no natural explanation for why mathematics is so entirely consistently accurate and successful. Uh, He tells of a Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist, Eugene Wigner, who wrote an article 50 years ago and it was titled this, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. And now in that article, um, Eugene Wigner asked this question. He, he actually he repeat, he repeatedly calls mathematics miracle. It, it, it's a miracle phenomenon for how effective it is. And he asks this question: Why do the same beautiful mathematical equations apply uniformly across space and time? I mean, we could easily conceive of a universe that is wholly haphazard and chaotic described by no underlying mathematics at all. Or we could conceive of a universe that is sporadically chaotic, where the laws of physics are occasionally suspended or altered every few years. Or we could conceive of a universe in which the laws of physics are not universal. They vary from planet to planet or galaxy to galaxy. All those are very reasonable conclusions. Instead, he says, we observe a universe with a deep and beautiful underlying mathematical structure that appears to be universal to space and time. So Wigner asked, why should this be the case? What is the explanation for this phenomenon? We don't have one. Wigner goes on to call attention to the fact that another miraculous or unusual phenomenon is that human beings are able to perceive of this structure. He says, after all, I mean, one might argue, okay, sure, evolution got us to the point where we knew if a a tiger's running at us, we should jump off the cliff to avoid him. But evolution doesn't give us any reason to explain why it is that humans have figured out how to discuss and comprehend quantum mechanics and molecular biology. So in other words, in short, if you're tempted to write off the Bible because of the supernatural claims that it contains, I think that you are writing off every single possible worldview. Modern science is remarkable, and yet it stands on a foundation that is floating in the middle of the Pacific Ocean as far as explaining the foundations of the things they take for granted. An honest, atheistic scientist will tell you this. In his funny little book, Uh, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, he confidently declares, the universe had a beginning. But then he's honest enough to say, and how, or what happened before that? We have no idea. Or rather, he says, our most creative ideas have little or no grounding in experimental science. So on the next page, he closes his books by saying this. We are stardust, brought to life, and then empowered by the universe to figure itself out, and we've only just begun. Well, Neil, that is an awful lot of faith you have there. It sounds like you have a God of the gaps to me. So friends, whatever you do with the supernatural claims of Christianity, we're not the only worldview that requires supernatural claims to make our worldview work. So my question for you would be this. Friend, are you willing to explore those claims? Are you willing to explore the claims that Matthew is making? Because notice, the angel didn't ask him to believe in nothing. He gave him a claim. She will bear a son. Okay, well, it's a 50-50 chance, right? Boy or girl. But it was a claim. It was something that could be tested. And sure enough, he had a son. And he named him Jesus. Jesus, which is Joshua, squeezed into the Greek, which means Yahweh saves. So see, Joseph names him Yahweh. Because the angel made a claim, and that claim came true in space-time history. And so Joseph was able to test it. So friends, I would just encourage you, are you willing to test it? You see, the rest of Matthew's gospel, though, is going to show us an unpacking of this comment, that Jesus was born to save his people from their sins. Now, Now, his people in the gospel of Matthew is the disciples. And because all people are sinful, they need to be saved from their sins, And those who become disciples are those who repent and believe and trust in Jesus. That is, they've explored the evidence, they've dug in, they've tested the claims, and they've come to see that, in fact, we are those sinners who need a Savior. And, in fact, Jesus is the one born of David who came to be the Savior. See, Matthew's not giving us a mere God of the gaps. No, he's making a claim with historical grounding. And as the gospel goes on, we learn this his salvation is available to all those who repent and believe. He's not just a Jewish king. He comes as the king for the world. And all those who turn and yield to his rule and reign will find that he is the king who can save them to the uttermost. See, Joseph was given evidence, and so are we. So, Shendi goes on to write this. Do not avoid searching, friends. He says, after all, if modern physics has done anything else, it has shown us that reality is unavoidably Weird since the advent of relativity theory and quantum mechanics which einstein disparaged as black magic calculus physics has revealed to us a cosmos that is increasingly distant from the ordinary world in the end we can't dismiss the claims of the bible solely because we think they're weird we need to test them as a friend if you're here this morning and you'd be willing i'll happily buy you a copy of shenvi's book we can read it together and i'll pay for the coffee while we do i encourage you be willing to test the evidence Well, finally, look again at verses 22 through 25. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Well, in verse 22, we have the first of 16 times in Matthew's gospel where Matthew is claiming evidence. This was to fulfill what was spoken before. So he's giving us evidence he wants us to check. And in one of the major elements of Matthew's theology is this fulfillment theology, showing us, no, this happened because of what happened before. And in particular here, he's quoting from Isaiah 7, 14, where he's saying the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will name him Im Immanuel. With us, God. God with us. Now, gallons of ink have been spilled on this prophecy in Isaiah. uh, And I'm not going to get into any of that. I'm happy to give you a reading list if you like. But essentially, here's what you need to know about it. Uh, The the book of Isaiah was written around 730 BC or so is when Isaiah is living. And he writes this section of his prophecy to the king of Judah named Ahaz. And in that time, Isaiah is told to go to King Ahaz and he says to him, uh, Ask for a sign from the Lord. And Ahaz says, nah, I think I'm good. I'm I'm just going to skip it. And so God speaks through Isaiah, and he says, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Except the wording in Isaiah 7 is interesting. It says, I'm going to give a sign to the house of David. Oh, isn't that fascinating? That's what Matthew's been talking about. So the sign really is is primarily to the house of David. Strictly speaking, that's who the sign was to. And Matthew sees the virgin birth of Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy to the house of David, 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 who he's been whispering about. So that's why Joseph takes Mary to be his wife, because he trusts that, oh, this is that, this is the fulfillment of those promises. So the birth of Jesus, the Davidic king, fulfills this promise made ages and ages ago, because God is making claims, and he's making those claims visible to be tested in space-time history. Let me show you one more claim that is made and fulfilled. Flip the page to Matthew 4, 13 through 17. Matthew 4, 13 through 17. Like I said, 16 times in this book, the word fulfilled, Matthew's claiming something is fulfilled. This is right after John the Baptist is is preaching, and then we read this other fulfillment. Verse 13 of chapter 4. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah land of zebulun and land of naphtali the way of the sea beyond the jordan galilee of the gentiles the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned and from that time on jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand so we read of jesus who's living in nazareth who leaves to Capernaum, this larger population of Gentiles in that area, already we're seeing that the blessing begin to sprinkle out to the land of the Gentiles. Galilee was hated by the Jews who lived in Jerusalem. Uh, They could tell by their accent. That's why the girl, when Jesus is crucified, says, Oh, yeah, you're a Galilean. I can tell by your accent. You're from Galilee of the Gentiles up there. But that's where Jesus goes in fulfillment of the words of Isaiah the prophet. So that a light would shine in Galilee of the Gentiles. And how does that light shine? With his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near because the king has come. The message of Christmas, that the king has been born. God with us in the flesh, declaring that this king has brought the light and hope to the world, to all the nations, to those who will turn and repent and trust in him. The question is, friends, when we see this light, does it become a life-changing reality for us? Through the very next section of Matthew, he calls his disciples those for whom he came to die for their sins, all those who hear his call to repent and to turn and trust in him, and they follow him with faith. See, friends, I opened with Tara Isabel Burton's book, Self-Made, because she's shown us how our modern propensity for divinizing the self, for creating and recreating ourselves, that we all do it to a greater or lesser degree. The message of Christmas, however, is the only one who can really create, God the Son who spoke the universe into being and who holds it all together by the word of his power, that he became created as a human. And yet, when he made himself, he made himself a nobody, coming from a crooked line with a rather shady birth story, to claim a kingdom that nobody would believe in at first, because he would be nailed to that cross with a sign above him that said, King of the Jews. So much for this king who brings his kingdom near to us. So yeah, we are those who are self-made. And we're either going to be remade by the one who came and made himself nothing for us. Or we're going to keep hopping on the hamster wheel of life. So that's why at Christmas time we turn our eyes to Bethlehem. As Pastor R.G. Lee has put it best, turn your eyes to the small village, to Royal David's city, and see the one called Emmanuel, God with us. Turn your eyes upon the manger, And see the Christ, the consolation of Israel who delivers us from sin and death and hell. Turn your eyes and behold your Redeemer. Set your heart upon the one whose name is Jesus. Given such a name because he shall save his people from their sin. What deep descent. From the heights of glory to the depths of shame. From the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth. From the exaltation to humiliation. From the throne to a tree from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the hails of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place of the cross. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined, born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for him who made all rooms, No place for him who knows all places. So he ends. Oh, deep humiliation. The creator born of the creature woman. But his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we could not ascend to him, he descends to us. That great descent, friends, is what we celebrate when we say, Emmanuel, God with us. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, how we thank you for the gift of your Son, the one who was made flesh to die for sinners such as us. Oh, Father, we would ask now that you would help us to treasure this incredible gift. And we pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.